the S and K, uh, the K and S uh, cafeteria, North Raleigh, is closing, and my parents don't know what to do. They uh, tease them because they have gone the way of my grandparents, and I don't know what it is, but uh, as my family gets older, they have a growing attraction to cafeterias. And uh, so we were talking about, well, what are you going to do? So, well, I don't know. We're going to find a cafeteria somewhere. It, uh, you know, <laughs> another restaurant wasn't an option. It had to be a cafeteria. And no doubt, I'm sure there's going to be a healthy representation here today at the uh, K&W, uh, not too far away from here. And, and, you know, it is a kind of a, a alluring place to go because you go there and, and you wait in line and, and you go into the meat section and you can pick out whatever meat you want. And then you go to the vegetable section. Pick out any kind of vegetables and the the breads and and the problem is is you know as I go from section to section, every time I go to a new section, I'm still hungry, and so I go to each section like this is going to fill me up, and so by the end of it, I've got this tray filled with food, like, and then you got to pay for it, uh, and then you got to try to eat it, and, and so it, it hurts me. Uh, but nonetheless, there's something attractive about that where you can, you can have all vegetables if you want it. You can have all meat if you want it. And, and you know what? You can have fish and you don't have to have coleslaw. You know, it's just a, it's kind of a, a nice way of dealing with it. And I think that a lot of times we treat, uh, life like it's a cafeteria. And especially in America, you can, you can take a little dab of this and a little dab of that how you want it. And that's kind of how a lot of fast foods are trying to, to make that approach, uh, to have it as you want it. And we do God the same way. And we think, you know what, I, I like this about God, these attributes about God. But you know, when I study the Hindu religion, I like these attributes about the Hindu or uh, the Mormons or any other things. And, and so we kind of have this cafeteria. Uh, we, we pick and choose. And, and a lot of people don't have a problem with the concept of God. I mean, after all, it kind of makes sense that there is a first cause out there, an original being to get the things rolling, if you will. And so they won't protest much when you talk about God. But when you start talking about Jesus Christ, well, things get a little bit iffy. And then when you take it from Jesus Christ to the resurrection, that's where you're going to leave most people. They say, well, you know what? I don't have a problem with you talking about Jesus Christ. He was a good teacher. I mean, there's some very admirable qualities about what we know about Jesus. And I'm going to ask you, well, how do you know anything about Jesus? Well, the Bible mentions a few things. Well, it's interesting that we'll take a few things about what the Bible says, but the Bible also says that Jesus rose again from the dead. But we stop there and we treat it like a cafeteria and say, I'll take Jesus, but please, no no coleslaw on the side. I, I don't want the resurrection. Let me not deal with that. But when you read the Bible, you'll find that Jesus and Paul and the writers of the New Testament says it's not an option. If you have Jesus, you have the resurrection too. In fact, Jesus said, I am the resurrection. Well, I want to take you to the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. And in that day and time, in this place, much like today, it was a multi-pluralistic uh, society 
with many different religions, many different beliefs about how you have afterlife and, and who God is and, and how you worship God. It, it was much like today. Folks say, well, you know, uh, you believe in Jesus. Well, that's fine, you know, from 100 years ago, 200 years ago. But today there's all these religions. Well, I got news for you. There have always been a lot of religions. And when Jesus walked this earth, it was done so with the setting of many religions. And it is in that city, or in that time, Jesus said, I am the Christ. I am the resurrection. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. Jesus was not naive, nor were those who followed him. They lived in the same setting that you and I live in. Uh, Corinth, the city, was a major city uh, that this church was founded in. Uh, it was it was known for several things. It was, first of all, a very commercial area. It's known for its commerce among the trade routes. Uh, it was an important uh, business center. And so consequently, it was a very cosmopolitan area. People from all over the world, all over the empire, were found in the city of Corinth. Very diverse in its cultural settings. Uh, it was uh, known for its competition. It had uh, huge Corinthian games there. And so it was, it was a, a competitive place so with sports as a high emphasis. It was also known uh, for its carnality. In other words, that it became recognized that to say that something was Corinthian was also the saying that it was something, uh, if, well, if I'd said something like Vegas Strip, you have some images that come to your mind. Uh, well, if you'd said something in Corinth, well, you had some similar images that might come to your mind that was known for its homosexuality, its immorality. It was uh, rampant in these areas. And so this is the city that this church was in. There were believers there, followers of Christ, uh, gathered together in our church setting. But along the way, some of the people there that were in this church setting, though they once believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they're trying to make it more palatable for those around them. And they said, yeah, we believe that Jesus rose again from the dead, but we don't believe in the resurrection per se. In other words, yeah, you know, you're not going to rise from the dead. That's just not going to be a, something that, that happens here. OK, uh, and so why? Well, think about it. How many folks do you know? Have risen from the dead. It's not a normal thing to believe. You've got every reason to believe that there is no resurrection. They think, you know what, this uh, this just doesn't happen. It's not it's not a normal procedure. So they were starting to teach there is no resurrection. And let's look at chapter fifteen. I want to take you to the first few verses, and then we're going to focus on verses twelve through nineteen. And we'll look at verse 20. And, and it, what we're looking at is, is Paul says, okay, let's pretend that you're right. What if there is no resurrection? What does that mean? But before he does that, he makes it clear that he does indeed believe in resurrection. Notice uh, he says, uh, verse 2, he says, I, I want you that while you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In other words, that if you're, you are being saved and it's dependent on you holding fast to this word, don't put this to vain. Uh, pursuits. Verse 3. I delivered to you as the first importance that I received that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. All right. It was a scriptural prophetic thing that Jesus would die for sins. Verse 4. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Again, it was prophesied that this would happen. And then verse 5. That he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep or some have died. 
Some people claim that the gospel narratives, that the New Testament writings were, were things that man made up. And that was written well after the events of, of, the, of Jesus. The only problem with that is it, it assumes that you're writing in this void and that there is no one against them. Paul is stating something here that what we're writing, there are people who live in our day and time who can back up what we say. And if we're wrong, there are people in our day and time who can call us out for that. If we said that there was a, resur- there was a resurrection and the followers of Jesus did not witness that, then they would have corrected Paul at that time. So he's writing this and saying, look, you know what? You can check this out for yourself. I'm not writing in a vacuum. There are ways you can verify. There's 500 appeared uh, that had witnessed the appearance of Jesus. Verse 7, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so he brings out the argument that Jesus rose again. And now we come to verse 12. All right, And this is where we're going to focus our, our attention and look at what if Christ had not risen from the dead? What would life be like? And so as we read this together, let's stand just in honor of this being the word of God. So let's stand and read it. You read it silently as I read aloud, starting with verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And of Christ we have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You may be seated. The first thing Paul does is attack this idea that there is no resurrection. He's saying, look, you believe in this? You believe there is no resurrection? Then to be logically consistent, you must say that Jesus has never risen from the dead. He says, are you ready to go there? And he tells the readers what that means if Christ has not risen from the dead, which is logically consistent with the fact that there is no, or the idea that there is no resurrection. So that's how he starts off. He says, if Christ proclaims risen from the dead, how can you, some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, now at this point he starts listing out what life would be like. These are five uh, results, if you will, of no resurrection. If there is no Easter, if there is no resurrection, then this is what life would be like. So he starts off by saying this. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Your faith is in vain. The proclamation, what we have been teaching, what Matthew has been teaching, what what Luke has been teaching, what Peter has been teaching, the apostles have been teaching. We are wasting our time, wasting our efforts. And it is a vain thing. Not only are we wasting our efforts, what you believe, how you are 
framing your life. The greatest treasure that you have, and that's what we mean by your faith, not just an intellectual ascent, but that which you treasure and trust in, that which you trust and treasure in is a vain thing. That's kind of what folks are starting to realize in America. If their treasure and their trust has been their economic stability or the welfare of our country, folks are realizing this is a vain thing. Wow. Well, Paul is saying, well, if there's no resurrection, that's what happens to us. What is this idea of vanity or futility is another word of saying that this is a futile effort in preaching. It is a futile effort in having faith. I have children, and one of which is a one-year-old. Understand, I live in futility on a daily basis. All right? What does that mean? Well, I'm somewhat obsessed, compulsive about a few things. Uh, one of which is in the, the room that I've kind of claimed for myself, uh, the sunroom, and I've done some decoration out there. And I've got on this, this uh, waist-level chest this little Chinese um, wine flask, I guess, if you will. Uh, I don't use it, all right, just to let you know. Um, but it's, uh, it's kind of like this wooden uh, flask with all these... Uh, cups, wooden little cups, nicely decorated, black with with yellow and red designs. It, you know, stands out. It doesn't just stand out to me. It stands out to my one-year-old. And, uh, you know, I've got it arranged just so, with the center flask in the center, the cups nightly symmetrically put around, the Chinese sticks put on top of it. He comes in there, and I'm like, man, that's for me. Bam! And knocks it out and makes a loud racket. Eight, you know, eight cups go everywhere, top of the flask going everywhere, you know. What the hell, you know. So I just take it and put it back up, you know. I, I, I do that probably on average at least twice a day. And the only reason it's twice a day is because I'm not there most of the day. If I was there most of the day, it would probably be something like eight times. And I'm just as obsessed and compulsive about putting it up as he is about taking it down. You know, and so it's just an ongoing deal. And, and, and that's that's life when you got a one year old, you know, everything is that way. And, and I started thinking about what does it mean to to be futile? And I think that's it. <laughs> it is a futile effort because I am constantly redoing something over and over again. And then I started to ask myself, what is it that I do that doesn't have to be redone by someone else or by me? Have you ever thought about that? Explore that? It is depressing. I mean, there I, I can't think of anything much that I that I do that will not have to be done again. I had this argument with making up my bed with my mom, but she didn't she said, I don't care. You're gonna do it again the next day too. And you know, but that's how life is. I, I thought, you know what? I'm trying to clean up the yard. And I'm trying to, to get rid of the sticks and mulching the sticks. And I think this is satisfying. The stick no longer exists. It's now mulch. But I turn around, there's another stick. And I got to pick up sticks all day. And there is no end to it. And you think, well, maybe it's to repair the house. But the house is going to eventually decay. It's, it's going to go. And someone's going to have to repair the house again if it's going to stand up. And then you think, well, maybe it's the car. Well, no, you know, it's not the car. <laughs> That's a continual battle. And you think, well, well, well maybe... Uh, maybe it's working with people in the medical field and I will cure some sickness and disease and you, and you cure them of this disease and sickness and you make them better only with the, just the matter of, of at the most a few years they're sick again and they will ultimately die. 
we've got some anesthesiologists in our in our church, and I think, well, maybe it's to to make them, uh, you know, not feel pain. But you know what? Most people die, and their last thought may very well be, "Ow." There's no getting rid of the pain. We're born in pain. We die in pain. And I think, well, maybe it's to teach your children. But you know what? Something can happen to the child so they forget everything they learn or they can die too. Well, maybe having children, well, they might outlive you, but eventually they too will die. And it could very well be that they may die without having children and your whole line could disappear from the face of this earth. Welcome to fertility. Solomon said it, everything under the sun is vanity upon vanities. There is a futility there. And so Paul is saying, if there is no resurrection, then let's add to this and say that the faith is also futile. I found there's one thing, one thing that you don't have to redo. Dying. <laughs> That's real fun. <laughs> All right. You want your meaningful work that you don't have to do again? Die. But you know, interesting enough, the Bible says that there is a resurrection. And even that, you go before God. And if you don't have your life right with God, then all you've got, that one thing that you can do that no one has to do again, is die. Well, that's not fun. But what Paul is bringing out here is this. If there is no resurrection, if Christ has not been raised, then the very thing, the core, the preaching, the proclamation of the gospel, the faith itself, trusting in Christ, is a vain thing. Now, futility. Apart from Easter, there is futility. But here's the good news. You can take the opposite of what Paul says. If there is an Easter, then that means there is something that can be done that is meaningful. That will not disappear with the marks of time. That will even outlive your, de- your death and the death of your children and your an- those who come after you. There is something that can endure. If there is a resurrection, then your proclamation of Christ, of the gospel, is meaningful. If there is a resurrection, then your trust and your dependence on Christ is the one thing that will outlast you. Put things in perspective. We spend our times day after day, moment after moment, doing futile things that we have to do over and over again. But there is something that I can do that will outlast me. And that is done with treasuring Jesus Christ and glorifying Him and trusting in Him in the mundane task. And so suddenly the mundane task can be eternal. Not because of the nature of the task, but because of the motivation and faith in glorifying God. Easter brings sense to life. It brings meaning to life. And apart from it is a futility of living. So if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and, and our faith is vain. It leaves us with a meaningless existence. But if Christ has been risen, the opposite is true. That pray, preaching, our faith is extremely, in fact, the only thing meaningful with value. Jesus understood this and and said that his whole ministry was hinged upon his resurrection. In fact, before he died, he gave this prophecy to his opposition. Matthew 12, verse 38 says this. Jesus said this. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them. 
an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, you want to know what my my ministry is true? You want to know that who I am? If I am of God, here's your sign. I will rise up from the dead. His enemies were aware of this. So in Matthew 27, verse 62 they said, uh, this passage says, next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard even the enemies knew that it was hinging upon the resurrection of jesus christ and so yes our faith our preaching has value because of the resurrection verse as we keep on going here not only is apart from easter life futile we'll find this he says we are even found to be misrepresenting god Because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. If there is no Easter, Paul, the apostles, and we who follow Jesus Christ are liars. We are liars because we are not teaching the truth about Jesus Christ. It's interesting to note why it is that Peter and Paul and these others did what they did. They lived in extreme difficulty. And the main and the only reason they lived in extreme difficulty was their belief and teaching that Jesus was raised from the dead. Paul was laughed out of Athens when he got to the point of the resurrection. He was persecuted for this reason. Why did they do that? Interesting, Peter, you know, in the crucifix story, he is the one that betrayed Jesus and cursed his name and ran away. All the other disciples did much the same. John was the only one that stood and watched the entirety of it. How is it that just seven weeks later, Peter is proclaiming before thousands at a festival that Jesus has been risen from the dead? What on earth gave him that boldness? Maybe he was as they were claiming. He was drunk. And and Peter said, you know what? I am not drunk. It is in the middle of the day. And we are speaking with sense. Understand that there is one reason why we are doing what we're doing. And that is they witnessed something that changed their life. To the point where it wasn't just a momentary day at Pentecost where they preached before thousands. But for the rest of their life, it was dictated by one simple fact. And that is they witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is why they died for that belief. But if there is no resurrection, these men are liars of the worst sort. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ, if you do not believe in the resurrection, then you have every reason to walk out of these doors and never Never come back to this church or any church and you have reason if you do not believe in the resurrection to curse off anyone who follows Jesus Christ because they are liars and they're propagating a lie to their own eternal damnation. That's what Paul is saying. There is no middle ground. Either you hate him or you love him. Either he is a liar or he is the truth. And so we keep on reading. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, 
Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. He's saying this. If there is no Easter, not only are you a liar, not only are you futile, you are guilty. You're guilty. Remember, these people, if they were to follow Christ in in the city of Corinth, they didn't have the luxury of being comfortable and at the same time of professing in Jesus as their saving Lord. They were thought strange. In fact, they were considered atheists because they did not bow down to the idols of the day. They did not go to the temples and make the sacrifices. They did not say that Caesar is God or Caesar is the Lord. They would not make these statements. And so they were making a a statement of faith that greatly restricted their economic abilities, their physical abilities, and even were persecuted and suffered. And some later were killed because of this profession of faith. And so uh, they were going out on a limb. And doing this and and rejecting the idols of their families. And saying we don't believe in this way to getting to God. But he's saying, you know, if if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then they have forsaken all manners of ways of atoning for their sins. And they therefore are guilty and with no hope for recourse, no hope of relief. You know, you think, well, what's the point? I mean, I thought Jesus died for my sins. Why did he have to rise from the dead? Well, Romans 4.25 says that Jesus Christ was delivered up for trespasses and raised for justification. You need to understand that if Jesus had not risen from the dead, his death for you would not be effective. Why? Well, let me explain it this way. Uh, A few years ago, I went to uh, India and I had a couple of my buddies with me. And we had finished our work and and teaching at a a pastor's conference there. And we had a day they were letting us to, to go shopping and we found ourselves at this um, rug store, bizarre, I don't know what they call them there, but, you know, they sell these, these rugs there. And uh, I had a couple of my friends, one of which really didn't believe in credit card, um, but, you know, they don't take American dollars there. Uh, if you don't have rupees or credit, then, you know, that's tough. And so he said, hey, Jared, can I use your credit card? <laughs> like, oh, man, you know. Uh, I knew he was good for the money, and uh, I knew where he lived, and uh, I think I probably had his plane ticket or something like that, you know, he wanted to get home, he had to, he had to make good, you know, and so I uh, said, so okay, so we were at this rug store, and we bought, bought a rug, and a little rug, and my friend, he buys a couple of rugs, and then my other buddy, he, he wants to use my credit card too, and, and man, we're talking... Uh, you know, thousands of rupees. I don't I have no idea how this translates. You know, man, I don't know. This ought to be interesting uh, how this works out. And so, uh, and I'm, I'm going to tell a story to recommend this, all right? But nonetheless, I, I give them the credit card. Now they're, wow, what's going to happen? And so they, they give them the credit card, and they start doing the whole uh, process, you know, with the, the digital computers and all this. And, and then they get a phone call right there in the store in India. And they, they asked for me. And the, the clerk says, this phone's for you. I said, who is calling me in India? <laughs> you know, this is not good. And how do they know I'm at the store? And so they hand me the phone. And they said, we are seeing some unusual activity on your credit card. We are your credit company. There are some purchases being made in India uh, that are, you know, pretty extreme. <laughs> okay. They need to know, are you Jared? And so they start asking me some questions that only I would know. 
And I was generally encouraged by this phone call. I'm glad they're doing stuff like this. But I thought, well, this still ought to be interesting. Will the credit company approve the purchase? And so they, you have the authorization pending, and, and finally it comes up, authorization approved. I thought, my goodness. It's, it, I'm good for you guys. All right, you better be good to me. Uh, let me just share with you what's going on with the cross. Jesus is paying a price. He's paying a price. And he's paying a price for your sin. Now, let's think about that. What is it that you are totally embarrassed about? Ashamed? Maybe it's a thought or maybe a plot that you conceived and maybe carried out. Something you thought about towards somebody. I mean, just with the recollection of it, it brings shame to your mind. Sin. And let's just say that one sin. Not to mention the numerous self-centered thoughts that you've had all throughout your life. But let's just say that one sin. And you look around here, and you see everyone else here, understanding that every single one person that's sitting next to you are in the same boat that you're in, including me. We're all together on this. And we're going to put all of these sins and these memories and the effect, and we're going to put it over here in John. John's miserable right now because he's got on his mind all of these sins, these memories. But what if we said, you know what? Let's not just do it with this room. Let's do it with all those who are alive today. And then we multiply that out again. And so not only those who are alive today, but all who have ever been alive in the past and all who will be alive in the future. Do you know that what uh, uh, folks tell us today is that there are more people alive right now than there ever have been in history combined? All of these sins, and that's just one sin. And they're put upon, not John, not me, put upon Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is saying, I will pay the penalty of your sin. God is holy. He is just. He cannot pretend that you did not do these things. He knows them. And he hates them. There must be penalty paid. And Jesus is saying, I will take upon me your sin. And there's a huge question. Jesus, are you good for that? Can you handle that? God Will you accept that? That is indeed a huge price. And so Jesus dies on the cross and the Bible says that he became sin. He became. You know that thing that you yourself are ashamed of and hate? Much less what God thinks about it? He became that. Heinous thought. No wonder God looks upon the cross and Jesus seeing that View of God on him. And he, Jesus cries out. My God. My God. You have forsaken me. Why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment he is sin. And there's a huge question. Are you good. For this. And so on Sunday morning. When the resurrection occurs. It was as if. The message came to us. You are approved. 
You are approved. Not because of who you are. Because of what Jesus paid. And I, though I have sin in my life, am no longer guilty. Because Jesus paid the price. But listen, if there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ, message approval denied, and we remain as we've been before, standing in our guilt. So consequently, apart from Easter, not only is our life futile, we are liars, we are guilty. The Bible also says we are hopeless. Notice how Paul says it this way. This is true that we are delivered up for our, uh, that we are still in our sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those that you have thought about before who have already dead, they are not in a good place. They are in the place where their sins deserve. They have no hope. Remember, they have already forsaken all the other idols before that folks said, you know what, if you just bow down this many times and, and do these many sacrifices, you'll have your, you know, you'll be good before God. They've forsaken these things. They're hoping in Christ. And then they say there is no resurrection. And Paul says, if you say that, then you're saying Christ has not been risen from the dead, which means you're still in the sins, which means that you have no hope. Lynn Daniels, many of you know in our church, his father spent most of his life apart from Christ. Could care less about church, things of the church, Bible, Jesus. We witnessed to him. I remember sharing the gospel with him when his wife died just a couple of years ago. It was last Sunday, one week ago today. Went to his house knowing that hospice had been called in. The doctors have said, you have just a few days left. I knew he knew that. He knew that I knew that. And as there, I shared with him the gospel again. Telling him the story about two criminals next to Jesus on the cross. He didn't know that story. He said, you know, one criminal... Looked at Jesus, and he died just like he lived. And that's how most people do die. They die just like they live. All folks think, well, I'm going to make a deathbed profession. Most folks don't. They die just like they lived. Here this criminal was, guilty, being condemned on the cross just a matter of hours. And he said, if you're the Christ, why don't you save us and you? Filled with mockery. But there was another criminal And I think God just gave him a realization and he said, you know what? How can you say these things to this man? We are on this cross because we deserve to be on this cross. But this man is here. And he does not deserve to be on the cross. And he looked at Jesus and he said, will you remember me today in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus turned to this man and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. I shared that with Lynn's father and said, look, you've lived your life consistently. Consistently against God. But you need to know from this story that there is still hope for you. It's late. But it's not too late. Remember it at that time when I asked him, is there any reason why you would not want to make Jesus your Lord and Savior? He said, I, uh, I'm tired.
and I walked away. But praise God, it was just a day or two after that. His cousin came and shared the gospel with him one more time. And it was there at that moment where he decided he would follow Jesus Christ and would make him his Lord and King. And we're going to have his wake this, this evening, tomorrow is a grave sign. There is no Easter. There is no resurrection. It would be a most pitiful, hopeless, depressing moment there. You know, I was reading this email explaining why we have terminology like we do. And I don't know if it's true or not. But one of the things that uh, they said is that back in early uh, 17, 1800s, you know, before medically we could determine when someone's in a coma, how to get out of that coma and, and whether they're alive. Sometimes folks would pass out and they would bury them. And they'd realize that they were not dead. Because afterwards when they had them get the coffin, reuse these coffins sometimes, they would find scratches on the inside. I thought, oh, that just gives me the willies. That's that's just a nightmare. And so they started doing a couple things like leaving the body out for a certain period of time for the family and friends to come to see if they would waken up. And thus, you have the word wake. And then sometimes they would tie ropes in cemeteries uh, to uh, inside the coffin where it would be attached to a bell. To let folks know that they were finding themselves in a situation. They'd ring this rope and saved by the bell. I think, well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if these things are true or not. I thought, that's crazy. But you know what? It, sh- it shows and explains a terrible scenario. Nightmares made of stuff like that. But you know what? If there is no resurrection, these things are just the tip. Death is something where there is no hope if there is no resurrection, if there is no Easter. It is a hopeless situation. And so Paul rightfully sums it up. He says, even those, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And in this, this life only we have hoped in Christ. We are of all people most to be pitied. Most to be pitied. But let me just explain this. If this is not true, if there is an Easter, then all these things are the opposite. Life is not futile, but life is meaningful in our faith, in our proclamation of the word. We are not liars, but we are truth tellers. If there is a resurrection, we are not guilty, but we are declared right. If there is a resurrection, we are not hopeless, but we are hopeful that even in the worst this world has to offer in death, there is still hope that is greater than death. And we are not to be pitiful, but if there is a resurrection, we are to be admired and emulated if we proclaim Christ and trust in him. It makes a world of difference. Anne Rice a novelist, she's been known best for her writings about vampires, interview with a vampire and others. She grew up in a Catholic setting, Catholic church, but uh, as she came to the 60s, she realized 
you know what? There are folks that did not believe in Christ and they were pretty good. They weren't as bad as what she thought they were as was taught to her. And, and started to lose what she believed about God and became an atheist, married an avowed atheist. And so she wrote these vampire books as she looks back on it, mainly as a kind of expression of a struggle she was dealing with about God. But back, or later, in the beginning of 2000s, early 2000s, around 2002, she started struggling with this. She was studying early history, started studying why Rome fell, and then the Egyptian cults and other groups. And, and one of the things that was puzzling to her is why is it that the Jewish nation and the Jewish people have survived when all these others that she studied have not? How could that be? And she started to think, maybe there is a God to explain why the Jews are still here. And so she started studying Roman history and started studying why Rome fell and started studying uh, the Christian uh, people and the movement that began in Rome. And she started having heart questions going back to God and Jesus. And she started thinking, you know what? There's all kinds of research about Jesus. People who say that, that Jesus is, is just fabricated myth upon myth and that there is a historical Jesus that's underneath all of the, the legend and myth that's found in the Bible. And, and so she knew that there was debate and controversy almost everything about Jesus and what he did and the New Testament writings. And so she decided that she wanted to study these things. And so she was preparing herself after being a, an avid researcher, uh, looking at... Uh, arguments that you know there are going to be powerful arguments against christ and and so she was preparing herself for these and as she started studying these things she saw really that these arguments were amazingly weak surprisingly weak and in fact that most of the times it was filled with a bias and research like no other field was filled with a bias and that a lot of these people just seemed to genuinely just not like jesus and then she started reading some of the counterpoints and she came to the conclusion that, you know what? These gospels seem to bear the marks of truth and not myth. And she's come about face. And now she writes a book about Christ. Not vampires. Part of it came down to is the resurrection. The resurrection, in large ways, was a leading factor in the demise of Rome in some aspects, and the division of Europe, and the change of how we view everything, because some people believed in the resurrection. But that makes sense. If you believe in the resurrection, life ought to be different. Let me ask you, does your behavior betray the fact that you believe in a resurrection? What do I mean by that? If you don't believe in the resurrection... Then what's your hope in? Well, maybe having a good life. Doing well for yourself economically. Therefore, you're very worried in these days. Is your life filled with worry? It betrays a lack of faith in the resurrection. If you did not believe in the resurrection, if you did not believe that there would be an accounting before God and an internal impact upon your life right now, 
Well, I would say that you would probably make sure that you did whatever you wanted to now. And that was your prime determinant. That your number one goal was comfort. And if it didn't bring comfort in your life, then you didn't pursue it. And so, you live for comfort. If that is your number one goal, then it seems to me that you don't believe in the resurrection. Because somehow you thought life was about here and now. But if you believe in the resurrection, there is going to be a dissatisfaction with just comfort and that you'll see that there is a larger goal ahead. And that indeed you will endure suffering and you will be selfless and you will have acts of service because you believe in a resurrection. If you will, get back to your Bible and look at the last verse of this chapter. He spends the bulk of this chapter talking about the resurrection. But at the end... At the end, he gives one powerful application. If there is resurrection, if Christ is risen from the dead, if Christ has given you resurrection and one day you'll be raised from the dead, then this means one very important thing. Therefore, my beloved brothers, therefore, because of the resurrection, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What's he saying? You figure out the one thing that's not futile. And it is to love God and to love others. And that you will spend your recesses, resources and give of yourself to glorify God and to love others. And you will endure difficult times and adversity to accomplish that goal. But you will be un- always abounding in the work of the Lord. Unmovable. You will be steadfast no matter what it costs you. No matter the difficulty of it. Because you know that your labor is not in vain. Because there is a resurrection. What are the marks of those who believe in the resurrection? This 58. They're steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What's the work of the Lord? Loving God, loving others. So, let me ask you. Does your actions betray resurrection? Are you loving God or loving others until it hurts? That's it. I invite you, for some of you, you need to continue, and this is a word of encouragement. But for some of you, you say, I don't do that. I don't love God. I don't love others until it hurts, just as long as it's comfortable. Well, I mean, it's because you're living for the here and now. This is a whole new way of thinking and living. How do you start this living? You ask the eternal God of love to come into your heart. You say, God, I need your forgiveness. I believe you died for me and rose again. Live in me. Make me new. Change me. That's done with expressing it to God. We call that praying. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. It could very well be that you need to tell God this for the first time. I'll help you with that as long as you mean what, what I'm about to say. Say it to God. Let's pray together and pray this together.